0: Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology, as well as all things spiritual and personal development. As part of the current Venus retrograde mood, we bring you a telling and discussion of the Orpheus myth. We as in, I interviewed Christina Farella of 8th House Astrology and host of Soror Mystica podcast, which I love about her research on this myth which she so generously brought to us. As for Orpheus, if an extremely talented artist going into the underworld to retrieve his deceased lover isn't a Venus retrograde in Leo mood, you know? So how is Venus retrograde in Leo treating you? How is this ceremony of the heart? One significant thing for me has been engaging my inner child in new ways, I'm going into trance and visualization, going back and relating to myself in spots where I was maybe more frozen in the past, and it's pretty life changing. Having my external reality then reflect the internal shifts has also been a deep reminder. Okay, so I have this experience of like really deep internal shift And I went out to the grocery store and like everyone was extra nice to me and joking around with me. And I felt like I had jumped into a whole different reality, right? And so when we make these internal shifts and the external reality shifts around us, that reminds me of the depth of Venus being on the inside. She can relate to what we do externally, superficially, but the real locus of power and change is that inner game. I'm also going to be giving a talk about Leo at the upcoming AstroBash Conference in Borrego Springs, California, September 28th to October 1st. If you want to attend, I would love to see you in person. See my affiliate link in the notes to register with my link. I'll be giving a talk on the mystical dimension of Leo, the way that play is a precursor to human religion and therefore also our cultural reality right like religion has made so much of what normal life is even if you're not religious it's it's the context of society in so many ways and it began with play it began with mammalian play and play here is an origin point for manifesting realities you know not just the traditional religions that have crystallized but you can play and create any ritual you would like and if we learn how to tap into that, magic. I have to say that getting my thoughts together on the topic again, while doing all this inner child soul retrieval stuff, is really setting the stage. I'm learning a lot, and a lot of codes are dropping about Leo, so I'm so excited to share at Astrobash. I do have a few other offerings. This is actually a hot time to work with me. There's some openings. One, my books are open for evolutionary fusion readings. These are readings that combine my longtime specialty in evolutionary astrology, which resources Pluto and the lunar nodes to tell a deep narrative about your soul life in a multi-lifetime context. I infuse some Hellenistic astrology and minor asteroids that are prominent for you. Hopefully, some you've never heard of or worked with before, like the Orpheus asteroid— or Ariadne, or Dionysus, or Semele, those three I listed are part of a family, some of my faves, but there's many more. And I scan for which ones are super prominent for you and weave them in and they often echo other themes in your chart. It's really cool to see what patterns show up. And then I end the session with integration through a personalized visualization or the Akashic records or EFT tapping based on what came up in the reading space. And the link to book that session with me is in the show notes. Um, I have some availability for August. And if you're finding this in the future, I mean, you can check the link and see what's happening because maybe there will be sessions up. But right now, as I record this, I have availability in August 2023. I'm also offering one to one mentorship. So this is an opportunity to work together in a coaching capacity for a longer period of time. And we come to your chart as a map throughout our time together, but we also step away from the chart quite a bit. We talk about what's coming up in your life and put it in like, it's kind of like a stretched out context of an astrology reading where we really get to work with the threads of your chart and the invitations of your chart over time. So you can email me, sabrina at monarchastrology.com if you're interested. You know, I don't say too much about what these mentorships entail. They are pretty personalized. If you really enjoy my transmissions and you feel like having me in your court personally to talk about what's going on in your life and for me to share um, my insights in a coaching way as you're moving through things and to draw it back to the chart, then send me a message and we can have a talk about it. And I'm also opening the Evolutionary Astrology Intensive to a new cohort this late October, but now the intensive is happening inside of a new container called Diviner, which extends the experience to a year. The four-month intensive, so the evolutionary astrology intensive that I've been teaching for five years, most recently called Dragon of the Moon, this intensive is designed to sequentially give you the tools to be astrologically literate with evolutionary astrology, to be able to read a chart from the perspective of the soul's evolution. So the material builds on itself structurally in that four months. But now, year-round, there will be new live classes inside of Diviner on an eclectic range of topics for people inside of the intensive as well as alumni who are part of Diviner. Astrology is a practice, and I love teaching new material because of the enchantment of it. Like It really ends up being revelatory for all of us. I learned this guiding meteorite and advanced alumni program Which ended up being like this astrological salon. So I'm going back and upgrading and expanding the intensive via Diviner to have a meteorite like experience inside of my beginner program. It's gonna be lit. I'm so excited to welcome you to the new cohort. Diviner is about cultivating astrological literacy and then traveling beyond into spaces of deeper gnosis and awakening and magic through that literacy. Alumni of the intensive are welcome back too. The only way to enroll is by contacting me. You can email me, sabrina at monarchastrology.com. I'm getting on calls with prospective students to explore your desire to be part of Diviner and we can see if it's a fit. I'm loving getting your emails and meeting with you. It is definitely not too early to enroll. You can beat the last minute busyness and secure your spot. There's also an option to combine one-to-one mentorship with diviner as I would super encourage my mentees to be in class too that will really deepen what we can do together so email me sabrina at monarchastrology.com to start a conversation about working together one-on-one or being in diviner or both and then in mid-september I'm sharing a mini astrology class and visualization series called emergence a visionary journey into the lunar nodes in Aries and Libra where the lunar nodes have just switched. I wanted to give you the tools to really have a lay of the land of what thematically the next 18 months are going to be about for you specifically. These themes will be highlighted in eclipse seasons, right? So where is the Aries-Libra axis falling in your chart? What houses? What planets is it touching? Like, let's let's pull that apart. Let's get to know it. This class is all levels. Whether you've already acquired this technical knowledge and you know how to... Look at your chart and know what parts of it are going to be activated or maybe you don't. And for those of you who already have that technical knowledge, the class is a visionary experience so it will still be an opportunity to explore this with more depth and intention. We're going to be going on vision journeys to channel your own gnosis about what the transit of the lunar nodes in Aries and Libra holds for you. It is going to be epic. I'm already channeling my own material for this in my own meditations and preparations and it's been profound and is rearranging things for me at a subtle and magical level. So about the lunar nodes, north node in Aries, south node in Libra transit, the Aries domain of your life, your Aries house will be a place of emergence. New life force and impulses are coming online. You may feel that you are drawing from the abyss or that you are setting out on a path with little to no reference points. And that creates insecurity and it calls upon your courage and audacity. The Aries domain of your life can be a place that you are being asked to exist. Though it may not feel like the world is welcoming you here with open arms. Maybe you're even being directly challenged. Maybe it feels like a fight. Despite the appearance of the obstacle, It's not really about the obstacle. It's about the emergent part of you the obstacle is pointing you to awaken to. The Libra domain of your life, your Libra house, will be a place of balance and recalibration. This is a place where you are not meant to negotiate without being fully yourself, lest you lose yourself. You're being asked to step out into new territory and bring that new awareness into new balance. Your audacity and innocent self-expression, your leap of faith, is charming. Life wants to harmonize with the real you, not just your mental idea of yourself or the world's idea of you. The Libra domain of your life is a song, and it's been missing a note, a tone, that the Aries domain of your life is inventing with a new I am. The next 18 months will be a journey of finding balance between your new emergent gifts and life force, and the harmony of life around you. Most dramatically, it feels like a game of war and peace, contradicting wills and tug of war. But maybe life is just a lover who's shaking you to wake up and play, alive, animated. Maybe life is a coach who's rallying you to give it everything you've got. Maybe life is refusing to let alone the seed of potential within you as though it doesn't exist when it does. Maybe you don't like the form it's showing up in, but can you hear the note anyway? Maybe you adore the form it's showing up in and the song is conspiring for your ecstasy. Life will show you how to be a better musician, how to balance the pulse of your own emerging song with the hum and thrum of life around you. None of us have this balance figured out yet, and balance is always emergent and ongoing anyway. This is the journey we will be invited on. It could just be a window into awakening. The link to join Emergence is in the show notes. We begin mid-September, and enrollment is open now. And now I'll get into this enchanting episode with Christina Farella. Christina Farella is an astrologer, scholar, and poet. She is the creatrix of Eighth House Astrology, where she offers astro-education, creative approaches to ritual, and astrological consultation. She holds an MA from the CUNY Graduate Center in Western Intellectual Traditions, where she completed a thesis on the influence of planets on blood and bodies in Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Her practice blends her interests of modernist art history classical and renaissance drama, and the occult. She's the co-author of The Celestial Bodies Oracle, and other writings can be found at Lit Hub, The Brooklyn Rail, Medium.com, Art Zealous, and Well and Good. Find her on Instagram at 8th House Astro, at her website, www.christinaforella.com, or on her podcast, Soror Mystica. And we have those links for you in the show notes also. And with that, I will leave you to our conversation that we had in may by the way so it's been a little bit this was a few months ago but i love to share this now as venus is retrograding it just feels like the mood for a story like this hey everyone i'm here with christina Perella of eighth house astrology We have a juicy conversation planned for you about Orpheus, the myth, the um, religion that came out of it and um, spontaneous musings and philosophizing that will come from going into this myth. Um, I understand that you're doing like research about this right now, and I'm really excited to um, have the opportunity to talk to you about that. I guess before we get started, um, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your relationship with astrology and myth?
1: Of course, and thank you so much for having me. I have um, been a fan of Magic of the Spheres for a while and really admire the way that you um, approach astrology and your own art practice through this particular medium. So, um, I was delighted to be invited to be here. So thank you. Um, so yeah. Hi everyone. I'm Christina. I am the creatrix, such a good word, uh, behind oh, wow. eighth house astrology. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I started this practice, um, I think back in 2015 or 16, after having studied astrology, like solo for many years. Um, And in my practice, I primarily, you know, started, I think like many of us as someone who offers readings to people, Um, but I find myself more in the role of teacher these days. And so that is delightful to my Virgo sun and my Gemini moon to be able to share information. Um, But overall, my relationship between um, astrology And myth is something that is born out of my own personal interest in um, art, poetry, dreams, mythology. I can remember vividly the English class that I was in in seventh grade, where we learned about the Greek pantheon. And I was raised super Roman Catholic. And I just heard about all these different gods for all of the different pieces of nature. And I was like, that's it. This is what it is. So that was my dorky little moment back then. And it just stuck with me. So when I learned about astrology and realized that all the planets were named for the gods, um, it was this like instant sort of affection that I had for that modality. And um, I think that the rest is history. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm a writer myself as well. And Orpheus as a figure who we're going to be talking about today has this really interesting role in myth because he's not just a kind of magical deity person. He's specifically a poet and he is the son of one of the muses and the god Apollo. And so um, a lot of my own kind of searching as a writer and as an artist and someone who loves art in general uh, feels very lit up when I think about Orpheus and the muses and all of these figures. So
0: Mm. yeah, I'm excited to, to open this up. I started adding in the asteroids and getting down the rabbit hole of Greek myths. And I did find this kind of revitalization with astrology in the sense that, you know, first connecting with astrology was meeting all the planets as beings, like really actually having these synchronicities or these encounters where the planets I felt were revealing themselves to me and the myths also visit in ways. So I relate like there's a kind of animism that's really shown up. So I get really excited about learning more about these myths and then getting to see through the lens of that how it shows up in people and how it shows up in my field. So I'm delighted that you know you gave this invitation to me um, by proposing this as a topic for me to connect more with Orpheus. Um, so maybe to start out, can you tell us about the story, the myth of Orpheus? Mm -hmm. Of course. And,
1: um, I love everything that you just mentioned and animism and even anthropomorphism is something that's, I think, a really big part of Orphic thought and Orphic, I don't know, imagining. Um, so yeah, we're, we're onto something already, which is awesome. Um, okay. So telling of the myth is always a good way to initiate us into the the space of um, feeling our way through these archetypes. So, um, you know, as with many myths, there are different versions, and I'm just going to share the one that I'm most familiar with, and everyone can take it and add in different pieces as they come across them in their own research. So the myth that I know of Orpheus is a kind of tripartite Story has three pieces. Um, The first piece is that Orpheus was this poet who had this great gift of song. He was the son of Apollo, who is the god of light and medicine and healing and rationality and illumination, also prophecy, um, as well as the child of Calliope, who was one of the muses. And she was like the head muse, she was the chief of the muses. Um, And so Orpheus has the power of song as granted him by his lineage, and he falls in love with Eurydice, who is sometimes like supposed to be a tree, a tree sprite, Um, sometimes she is a stand in for Persephone, depending on where you're approaching the myth from. Um, But Eurydice is just a beautiful maiden who he marries, and they're very happily wedded. But Eurydice was out walking with her friends um, and steps on a snake and the snake bites her fatally and she perishes and goes to the underworld. And so that's part one. Part two is um, Orpheus realizing that his beloved has been taken from him and he grieves. He laments so vociferously that he moves everything on earth, people gods, rocks, trees, animals, the rivers, the oceans, they all knew about his sadness. And so as a result of this um, kind of enchanted song, he was able to go down into the underworld and make his way through the different kind of levels of that landscape, famously like charming Cerberus, the three-headed dog with his music, and then performing this poem for Hades and Persephone. Um, asking for the ability to bring Eurydice back up to the day world. And it was so moving that they said, yes, but on one condition, there are always conditions and myths. Um, The condition was that she would follow him out of the cavern of hell. um, And if he just didn't look back, he was not allowed to look back to ensure that she was there. He had to trust that she was being delivered up to the day world with him. And then they would be able to re, you know, start their lives together. Um, Orpheus on the way up began to be very nervous because he couldn't hear her footsteps behind him because she was a shade. She was not an embodied person. She was still her kind of like spirit self. And so anxious to see her, he gets to the top of the mouth of hell and instantly turns around to grab her hand and bring her up with him. Um, and it's unfortunate that she is not yet out of hell. She's still trailing behind him in the tunnel and the spell is broken and she is pulled back into the depths of the underworld. And that's just like this horrible second loss to die twice, um, is just absolutely heartbreaking. And to lose your lover like that is absolutely unthinkable. And so he then continues to grieve and lament, and part three of the story is that in his lamentations, he is found kind of set upon by the maenads, who are attendants of Dionysus. And these are some pretty wild girls. They loved to um, seek ecstatic situations and get really drunk and leave reality, as Dionysus kind of encourages people to do. Um, and In finding Orpheus, they tear him limb from limb, Uh, and so they scatter his pieces of his body all over the earth, and his disembodied head floats down a river, prophesying and singing, until it washes up on the shores of an island called Lesbos. And he prophesies there still, and so since he's the son of Apollo, who is the god of prophecy, in his disembodied state, he's in this prophetic register, I guess. Um, eventually Apollo finds the head and bids it to rest. And his lyre, his poet's lyre, becomes the constellation that we know as Lyra. And that is the end of the story. So it's a pretty wild one. Um yeah.
0: as they go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for that beautiful retelling. Like there's so many parts in that um that are evocative, right? Like this musician who's so like seductive or so compelling with his song that even the rocks and leaves and like everything is moved and the compelling force of that to bring back the dead um what do you make of i mean actually first like what parts of the myth actually like really strike you well okay i
1: think that the first thing that always caught my imagination was just the idea of like the enchanted the enchanted nature in the first part of the myth, like gathering animals and trees and plants and stones to you because your song is so beautiful. Like it suggests a kind of receptivity in the natural world that really excites me. Um, And again, like the animism thing is there. We get to remember, I think that this is what astrology does a lot of the time too, especially when we have a, a ritual practice around our chart or the transits. It's that there are correspondences between above and below and every planet has its signature plants and trees and stones and all that stuff, colors, whatever. Um, and so I like, I like evidence in myth or in art that I am correct in believing that everything is alive and enchanted and in sold. Um, so I think that that's the first mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, how does that, what does that light up for you, if anything?
0: I just feel like it's true like my experience of being in ritual like outdoors with the elements is that the elements respond that the wind gusts at very particular times on like a clear day where the sun comes out in a very particular moment and I feel like when I'm really deep in connection with my muses um, like in terms of my creativity or writing I will notice the weather outside change and mirror you know like even moments of like responding to like a particularly lit up message I got where someone was sharing like a vision that they had in a dream and I was responding to it at this moment that lightning started going off um, outside my window and you know or moments where I just have cleared like a huge pocket of grief and I'm like in this spaciousness and suddenly the sun comes out and fills my apartment with this golden light and it's part of my relationship with reality to take those things, um, seriously, or that they, they mean something like I don't write these things off as coincidence. And I think this is something that I feel really passionately about because I think that, you know, when I encounter people that are skeptical of astrology or think it's dumb or something like that, I'm like, where have you cut yourself off from the poetry that the, as above, so below that, just like everyone has like a you know a unique palm and fingerprint that may like say map something about who they are that the moment we were born and the alignment of the planets you know is actual data we can track it's like actual astronomy and that there's this deep tradition of matching that with all of this poetic you know and mythic content and that we can actually see and feel it and i think that you know, to practice astrology, to study astrology, we really do immerse ourselves in that literacy. So we can recognize that magic, but um, without that particular language, like working directly with the elements or like being with our creativity and with nature, you can see nature start to animate in response. And I think that actually like really receiving that and not writing it off with like this hyper- human like nothing matters or like nothing is meaningful kind of worldview, oh like to just actually take it in that nature is responsive to us
1: mm-hmm. mm. I love all of that so much and I totally agree and have had experiences um similar to what you're describing and I I just have come to believe that like nature kind of conspires with us if we invite it in. and um that's not to say like, everything will be perfect as long as you do what you're supposed to do because bad stuff happens all the time. But when we have an intentional connection with the natural world, and especially I think through astrology, because it gives us so many stories to go on, um, so many ways of seeing self or individuation or healing or magic, then we are doing something like essentially like we're, we're recuperating something that like you say, has been lost in our sort of like post enlightenment, you know, hyper rational, hyper corporate world that a lot of us are immersed in. Um, and I think that we're doing the work of kind of breaking that spell as well by practicing astrology and living through that example. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a strange life, but it's a beautiful Mm. one. (laughs)
0: And what do you make of this particular charm, artistic charm, being something that kind of breaks the ordinary rules of the underworld and brings back mm. the dead?
1: Mm, yes, um, such a lovely question. I think that, you know, I think that when exploring the contours of that piece of the myth, it is Yes, art, but it's also grief that kind of opens the portals for Orpheus and gives him passage through realms that are ordinarily very hard to get through. Like In the myths, we don't have a lot of stories of people going down to the underworld and coming up unscathed. You need the guidance of A witch or a sibyl or some kind of other spirit guide, or you have to be Persephone herself or Dionysus himself, right? Um, Or Mercury. And so the fact that Orpheus is able to go down and uses grief to do so is highly compelling to me. I think that it speaks to probably the universality of grief um, over loss and the way that grief is also supposed to be articulated as an art or as a form of poetry. And we don't have a lot of space for that in our world these days, because, you know, we're kind of immersed in a world that is constantly grieving, um, but everything is so fast that we don't get to embody it. And so I do think that that is a very important piece of the Orphic story. Um, The idea that grief is the vehicle, um, for sort of the descent, um, the initiation there, you know? And so, yeah, I have, I have other ideas about lamentation in general, but, um, yeah, how do you, how do you feel about that artistic kind of tool, um, that he gets to use as a key?
0: I mean, that's so beautiful, the grief part and the sense that, I mean, I feel like grief expressed, it reminds me of like Martine Prechtel's grief and praise and just like this idea that it is more natural or it's like more human to like fully emote um, and be in the, um, the ceremony of grief as opposed to kind of putting it away, compartmentalizing it, trying to just get on with life, that it really does break out um, this moment of of just communing with life, with what we've lost, um, with the opening that lives inside of that. And, um, I think the part about it being witnessed and the receptivity of the witness, um, I just spent part of my Saturn return, writing a novel and sharing it on the podcast. That was a public act of grief. And I invited people into it with me and it was really like a powerful experience. And it was something that i'd been holding back because i was trying to just like move on with my life or you know get better or something like that and finally it was like no it's time to fully muse it and just put it out into the world um, so i think that this this quality of engaging art as a way to transcend the ordinary limitations of life to kind of enter a liminal space where the death and regeneration process can actually occur right? Like instead of just being stuck in the um, unprocessed grief, right? Because I think we stop our grief because we are afraid to feel it or feel like it's going to take us under forever or something like that. But it is actually part of the way that we recycle energy. It does literally kind of invite a death process and um, like a compost and a regeneration from that point.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that to me evokes almost even something as simple as like, the planets transiting from like the seventh house to the eighth house to the ninth. We go from like the partnered space to the space of death and then back out into the day world. And sometimes in the ninth house where the sun, you know, has his exaltation. And I sometimes kind of lay that out for my clients to remind them that there's a flow here that we actually need to move through that sort of labyrinthine space of shadow in order to get to the place where the sun is really brightest in terms of planetary joys and stuff like that. Um, And I do think that as far as archetypal experiences go, the archetype of death or grief is something that is so, again, like you say, like almost repressed. Um, People are afraid of being swallowed by it. And You know, I think that when we avoid these complexes or just complex experiences, they grow more hydra heads, (laughs) and they become louder, and they take—they actually take up more space in our psyche and in our body and in our um, dreams—and we get lost even further in them. And so, you know, several years ago, going through my own witnessings of like illness and death in a really intense way. Um, I became very obsessed with ancient Greek funerary traditions. And this became my like way of coping <laughs> by learning about um, ancient funerary traditions in the Mediterranean. Um, and My family is um, partly Italian. I'm half Italian. So it was this kind of ancestral exploration. And I learned that in the ancient world, like pre-classical world, Um, women had this really unique role of being poet lamentresses in the communities that existed. And so women had this really fascinating job of welcoming both life as doulas or midwives or just bearing children, and also having the role of um, public grievers. And their voices were thought to literally tear a portal through the realms so that souls could go on to the next experience. Um, And this was a very, very pivotal and public, again, part of life in the ancient Mediterranean, the archaic Mediterranean. Um, But around, I think, like the sixth century B.C.E., when um, democracy was kind of becoming the the dominant framework, um, the lament and the female-led lament in particular was outlawed by a politician named Solon. And so it became punishable by law for women to grieve publicly. And if you were seen visiting the graves of deceased people or leaving offerings to gods, you they had like special police to capture women for doing this. I think they were called like, oh, it's the, oh my God, I'm not going to remember it. Gyno, gyno, I'll never remember it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, but anyway, it was um, really interesting to see that because that feels to me like the seed of so many other kinds of repressed expressions of primal human experiences um, and so with Orpheus we see that expressions of grief do actually get to move stone and let us pass through darker realms unfortunately he wasn't successful coming back up but he got yeah, wait, he got I'm down blown
0: away at this this historical part about it being outlawed to have these like lamenters yeah and you know this is my first time hearing that but I I relate to that dynamic in like an internalized way like in my own experience of that and seeing other people go through it where it's like the kind of protector like inner guard that's like you're not allowed to grieve and like that voice versus the power of actually like tearing the portal um yeah I think it. It reminds me of a moment that I had where something came up that was really important for me to grieve. But at the moment that I found the news, I didn't feel anything. And so I went into like a ceremony with myself and just like put on music and danced and was feeling into it until I reached like the tears and the emotion of it. And it like absolutely gutted me in this way that then when it came to the, um, the funeral like I could bring my poetry and my tears and like have that be part of it and I just remember feeling like at that moment of numbness like I can't have that for this like I really whatever this defense is right now like I need to tear the portal and actually like honor this moment this feels really important and just the way that we have learned to think of that portal tearing as like something scary or something that disrupts life when it's actually like a really important like part of the cycle or like fertilizing life to be in contact with that material and let it come through the portal let ourselves be opened um you know or else we run the risk of becoming crusty and numb and like not connected basically after a number of things happen that cause grief that we've un- not been able to process.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that too. I think that sounds so beautiful and giving ourselves permission to feel, and specifically I think even like moving our body through these emotions is, um, not kind of talked enough about, and I'm no expert, but I do think that there is a lot of wisdom in, finding ourselves in ceremony with that so that we can locate the grief and you know strive to integrate it and I also don't think that we ever really integrate every single piece of grief it's like this many feathered creature um, that's always like leaving behind little filaments of itself but there is a way in which um, we can kind of try to capture the core of it and not let it be so scary to us anymore. And so I think that that's really, really important um, in that space. And, you know, I think that kind of what you're talking about with ceremony is interesting because um, a lot of scholars kind of touch on the fact that Orpheus has a lot of similarities. Um, between like his story and his gifts and his skills. And uh, even like earlier, like paleolithic cultures that were, um, you know, shamanistic in their spiritual orientation. And so there is this sort of idea of the um, the shaman or the guide into the darkness um, that Orpheus plays the role of that initiator as well. And um, yeah, I think that that's also a very, tucked away piece of that myth but it's it's there
0: and then the other part of the myth that I think is especially mysterious is the way you know that he's given the instruction to not look back and that he somehow can't resist looking back even though that is the one very important instruction and I'm you know as far as I understood it he got the direction he knew that but somehow he looked anyway. And that's when she, you know, fades away forever. Um, And just kind of like the, what does that say? Right. Like larger than even like his story inside of it. Um, And ultimately too, I think when he, the version of the myth that I've heard after he gets like torn limb from limb, he's able to go into the underworld and be with her. Mm -hmm. So he kind of in his, um, maybe that's like another part in terms of what that means, but in terms of, yeah, him looking back and losing her, what do you make of that?
1: No, it's so, I mean, it's so heartbreaking and like, you know, the story of separation from one's beloved is just in general, like totally unbearable to me. I have Venus and Scorpio, so, and it's conjunct Pluto. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I care deeply and um, yeah, being separated like that, you know, it'll just, yeah, it's, it's extremely moving. And the not looking back thing is so curious to me too. Does it say something about like trusting the ascent away from shadow um, and really fully getting ourselves into the light before looking back to try to reach into that dark space again for whatever's left? Um, You know, I think in, you know, my initial reactions to that, isn't there like a Bible story where um, like Lot and his daughters and wife like fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, they're not supposed to look back at the destroyed city that God like turns to flame. And then I think his wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt, which as a kid, I had no idea what that meant, but now I think I can picture it. Um, And so that's like another echo of the, don't look back and trust that you have to flee from this place of, um, of heaviness and grief. Um, And so I don't really know what the answer might be, but it's something that's archetypally resonant that it shows up a few times, at least in these older stories.
0: Yeah. One kind of metaphor that I can think of right now is when we're doing the kind of deep excavation of like our personal patterns, shadows, etc. And then we get invited into the same story again. Mm-hmm. And like, if we're gonna, you know, go back into the pattern or like keep moving forward. um, That's like one thing that comes to mind. I love that. And it's really hard
1: to do. Um, because those patterns are really hardwired into our little Neural pathways, and so um, being aware of the invitation back into the pattern, and maybe instead of using the liar to guide your way through that labyrinth of the underworld, you choose a different tool to carve your path forward. Right? It's interesting,
0: right? And I think another part that I'm I'm kind of like teasing out here is like the trust part of just like leaving, and that he um, can feel her hand like she's behind him they're holding hands so like he can actually feel her too and like the um the kind of need to look back and check and like where we're inside of a portal where we have to just completely trust the direction that we're in and not waver um, in this case the cost of wavering was so intense and so tragic
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's one of the hardest um, like muscles to grow is that trust in the dark sort of feeling. Um, knowing that eventually there is some kind of terminus or the story shifts or our orientation to the complex of grief or fear or, or whatever it is will change um, right it's it's built into every story that there's always like a pivot. Um, and so I do think that it is an important takeaway. I think I, I don't want to blame him though for not trusting. And I feel so, I feel so sad that that's what happened because of the intensity and love that he had for Eurydice, that he just needed to know that she was there. Um, And so it's just, again, it's just so tragic, um, but very beautiful.
0: I'm getting some hits on the eighth house astrology. Like why the name of that? Like um, the funeral research, right? The understanding of um, trusting the dark places and like navigating that terrain That's I feel passionate curious. about it yeah <laughs> what like what kind of um inspired the name it's very
1: simple um in Placidus which is the system that I learned on my son and fortune and south node are all in the eighth house and I felt very um I felt very validated by uh, what I read and learned about the sun in the eighth house, namely um, number one, being attracted to, you know, not just psychology and the occult, but like things that are heavy and dark and a little bit frightening that other people go through. Um, I was always the person who could just like witness and hold space, if that makes sense, with my friends and whatever drama was going on in my personal life, um, it never really flustered me that things were dark or heavy or weird. And I thought that it was important to always validate that for people that I loved. At the same time, Sun in the Eighth House, too, can also bring up a lot of stuff around authenticity and power and power struggles, power dynamics. And so, you know, it's a longer story than would fit this show, but I have had a lot of learning come up, um, you know, both with like family of origin stuff and, you know, just like growing and individuating where it always came back to um learning about how we hold power um and how it can be healing or or harmful. So um and then in general I just yeah, have always loved the darkness, <laughs> but, you know, with the intent of shining a light on it and making it be human and not scary because we all have an eighth house. And, um, I think that it's important to not fear all of that too. Um, you know, so yeah. And just kind of witnessing a lot of, um, loss. Yeah. Uh, has been, has been part of the story. So in whole sign though my son goes into the ninth house but it still rules the eighth so I still I still have that link and my south node is still there but um I felt like that was like my growing into my chart realization about the mm-hmm. the ninth house sun, um eighth house sun was very much my 20s if that makes sense
0: yeah I know I love that journey of having different perspectives of our charts because of house systems and like how the perfect timing of it guides us through um I also really, you know, what you're saying about finding, finding that soul or energy or vitalization in those difficult spaces. And I think when our nature is predisposed to have some kind of gift or illumination in that area of life that we can connect with feeling good about fulfilling that role collectively, um, even though it's not like looked at as something that's pleasant. And I think um you know, the experience of being embodied, of being on earth is so gnarly. Like there's so much that, um, is like ugly or gross or like terrible about life. Um, and also so much that's beautiful. It's like completely full spectrum. And I find that to like actually be in that full, like solar illumination of joy or the ecstatic, like there is also that relationship with the darkness, with the underworld. Um, and so when, People particularly have a gift in that area of life or an appreciation for it. I think they, they do stand at that threshold of realms where it's like, you can go into like that deep material and find, um, the energy that frees up and like the, the magic of that space.
1: Yeah. That's so beautifully put. And, um, I think that, you know, for that reason, when I started learning about like the lament, the, the ancient Greek lament, I was like, so sure that this was something that needed to be recuperated and um prized and kind of you know made into a gift rather than um something that is um hidden or even mocked or or repressed and so yeah I think that um the eighth house to me offers us so much I know that it can bring up a lot of really heavy territory so I'm not here to say the eighth house is like fun and sexy. It's definitely um, a complicated place. But one of my favorite ways of envisioning the eighth house or the underworld in general um, is like in the Roman stories of of the underworld, it's conceptualized as a pine forest at night. And I love this idea because the forest is um, an ecosystem. It's its own like entity and it's full of things that are rotting on the floor but also things that are reaching up probably towards moonlight in this like imagined you know description Um, and you can find I think that description in um, the Aeneid in Virgil's Aeneid and so you know thinking about the eighth house as this pine forest or the underworld in general as a place of like fertility as well as darkness always feels important for me to bring into my sessions with people Um, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm.
0: so what was I know you have some ideas on how Orpheus connects to the artist can you share about that
1: yeah it's it's so you know Orpheus is I think maybe getting away from the myth a teeny tiny bit um Orpheus stands out as this compelling figure to artists throughout history, Goethe Goethe and, uh, you know, like Rilke and um, Mallarmé and even, you know, Plato, who's not an artist, he's a philosopher, uh, you know, is obsessed with Orpheus in his renderings of the the Republic. And um, there are just many people who touch in and on and with Orpheus. And I think it's because of that, kind of what you said, him being at the nexus of day world and underworld, that sort of threshold figure. Um, But the fact that he is proof, like we said before, that the poet can change reality and the poet can um, charm the atmosphere and bring about a new experience is so, so, so interesting to me. And when we think about art, um, you know, There are some who say that Orpheus is the figure who represents the meeting place of Apollo and Dionysus. Um, And so one of the texts that is actually important to me in my thinking about the lament and culture uh, in general is Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, um, where he kind of renders this split between the Apollonian art and the Dionysian art. Apollonian being what he calls the plastic arts. So like sculpture and, you know, uh, academic painting and things that require like the rational mind to create. Whereas the Dionysian is um, this sort of the ecstatic art form, um, the art of passion and ecstasy. It's very much like Rambo's, you know, a season in hell or a drunken boat or something like that. And um, Orpheus, as he is someone who is a poet, descended from Apollo, but also has this sort of rapturous quality, is like located at the meeting place um, of these two gods who can talk to us about art. So that's like juicy as heck to me. Um, I also think that the concept of the artist as someone who receives messages um, and prophesies is also really interesting in this. He is not just a poet, but he becomes a poet who prophesies or the poet prophet at the end of his tale. And of course, Apollo being in charge of the muses in charge of in quotes, um, you know, he had his Oracle at Delphi and he was also a God of prophecy. So it just seems to me, I'm kind of like collaging all of these things. And this is where my like Gemini moon brain kicks in and I'm sorry everyone, but there's this interesting interweaving between the psychic, the creative, the passionate um, and the rational that Orpheus seems to really sort of express. Um, so yeah I don't know how you want to untangle that ball of yarn that I just dropped on you but yeah.
0: Well the connection of artist and prophecy um, there's so much inside of that. I think even like astrologers like right now because astrology is so um, it's like having a renaissance and many people are finding it young and finding like high quality resources online and like, um, becoming skilled at it earlier. Um, like there's more resources. So there's this boom. And I think that prophecy is an art, right? Like Mm -hmm. becoming, um, like everyone has their own kind of artistry around how they do astrology and whether, you know, they predict events concretely or abstractly, or if they do prediction at all, um, but I think to speak to someone of the promise of their natal chart, the idea of like, you know, here's um, like a a version of you, like a greatness in your chart that you could become, here's some of the things that are in your way, like maybe some shadow material or like kind of maybe likely problems along that way is also a form of prophecy to kind of show someone like what is what could emerge for them in life. Um, And then the artist, has prophecy right and like the way that you know artists I think when they really um, spark the collective sometimes they have a way of being like ahead of their time right or they're kind of like at the um, at the threshold I remember having a um, vision I don't know why I'm getting all these memories in this conversation of like different moments and visions and whatnot but I was outside on a really windy day in a forest and like kind of found this bluff and, um, inside of the trees there, I wasn't really exposed to the wind, but at the edge and the bluff, I felt like exposed to the world somehow. And like this rush of energy. And I got this vision of like the artist as a figure who's standing at that threshold and is receiving this rush of energy, the muses, all the inspiration and how then they're channeling that to disseminate to the people and whatnot. And how, um, yeah, that's a, lot, that's a lot of energy to be kind of channeling and be exposed to. And I think of artists um, who have this like compelling quality and they're enchanting the masses and whatnot that they have a lot of like power in their art running through them. Like they are really channeling something um, that animates them into this kind of aliveness that's beyond and the other thing that I thought of like it gave me this rush of like all these different things at once but I thought of um, writers that write something fictional and then a few years later it happens and how that's actually kind of common I've had my own versions of that even like character names and then those you know people with those names showing up and you know I try I've tried to not be neurotic about that in terms of I can like write things and not worry like oh am I creating or manifesting this um, I keep a light light-footedness and light-heartedness about it but I do think there could be something around like one who wants to intentionally practice manifestation in terms of you know we we practice manifestation by seeing the story and feeling it and making it real inside of ourselves in an artistic way and then it it comes through it's not just the same as like oh i want this kind of life or i want this income or i want to get this house or i want this partner usually people make it a whole story and like really flush it out in some kind of artistic way so that they can really feel it and then the manifestation or the future comes through
1: mm, i love all of that and you know i think that artists themselves are really really people who um like collect synchronicities as part of their experience. and it is something that gives inspiration to again, remember like, you know that um, seeing something echoed outside of ourselves that we've thought of or dreamt of is again, a little bit of a confirmation of the divine in a way. And then putting that into art, um, it's a little bit different than what you were describing of like writing a scenario or naming a character and then meeting somebody with that name that that would like knock me down. That would be really really interesting. Um but I do think that it's totally normal for people who make things to have those experiences. I also love the story of you on the bluff. It's so like romanticism to me. You're you're a romantic uh being in the wind <laughs> at the cliff's edge with the Thank music. you for
0: seeing me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um you know, and so I think that what we're also kind of tracing is this interesting um like call and response between the internal and the external that I do think that um, the artist is tuned into whether you are channeling something from dream or automatic writing or meditation or if you are literally just in relationship with what you see in the world around you and then create it into something that's has a form um, painting or sculpture or a piece of literature Um, I do think that that is The call and response is very Orphic and I'll share like a little two lines from Ovid's Metamorphosis, which is one of the places where the story is told. Um, And it's very simple. So it's at the part where the disembodied head is floating downstream. Ovid writes, midstream, the liar gave forth some mournful notes. Mournfully, the lifeless tongue murmured. Mournfully, the banks replied. And so there are all of these moments in the Orpheus myth where he is expressing and then nature is replying. And to me, that is synchronicity or alignment or even manifestation as well. Um, And so I do think that as artists or creative people, bringing in those new visions is also very much part of what we're here to do. And um, even learning your chart is part of that experience too, seeing how your personality and experiences manifest from the, the flat map on your computer screen or your printout or your phone app, whatever you're looking at. Um, there is this, uh, again, like echoing framework of connection that the artist or the astrologer or the diviner gets to experience. So hmm. I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. What do you think um, Eurydice represents? in terms of like the artist
1: Mm. I want to give her agency but my gut feeling is always like she is she is art personified um in some stories in some translations she's described as like in full bloom a woman in full bloom and that can mean like with child like she's gestating something and I think that the idea of um the artist gestating uh, is something that we all do when we're making things, right? And so, you know, Eurydice maybe is like pure art, pure beauty, pure love. Um, And then in some, you know, actual other mythic renderings, Eurydice is sometimes a stand-in for Persephone. And so this is kind of where the underworld myths start to overlap when we look at the historical, Uh, records, I guess. Um, The cult of Orpheus and the cult of Eleusis or the Eleusinian Mysteries had a lot of interweaving. And so sometimes Orpheus, you know, is the consort of Persephone. And that's totally weird to think about as well. Um, Sometimes Persephone is the mother of Dionysus, like it's just these cult stories kind of bring that in. Um, The Core, which is what Eurydice, I think also represents, which is who Persephone is, the maiden um, you know, is another archetype that I think is really rich with like power and agency. Um, and, um, the core represents the kind of, um, ability for the feminine to be self-possessed and totally like within the realm of the body. Um, and so, yeah, that's a whole mess of associations again. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, what are your Eurydice thoughts? Yeah. Tell me.
0: Um, I think there's something you know the this is maybe my own projection in terms of how I would relate to the myth but I feel that there have been times where I'm trying to to retrieve something or get something back and the kind of idea of like, don't look back or like, you know, the kind of almost ghostly, like not fully there. You can't really tell that whenever I've tried to go back and like resurrect a particular experience that there's something about it that feels like, like slightly ill-fated where it's like, no, that's not the thing, you know, and like to, um, to just to recreate um, in the present, essentially like the new thing. Um, and so I think that the grief of like leaving behind, you know, their, their love before this happens, it seems like there's such kind of like idyllic perfection about it. And I think also that, that there's this natural inclination to try to like recreate that, um, whether it's with the same person, like creating that cycle again, or, um, whether it's with you know, a new person after a relationship has ended or, um, but I'm not sure. I'm not really sure like the the part at the, you know, of how he looks back and loses her. Um, and in terms of what she would represent as art. Yeah. That's more of like an open question to me at the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Me too. I really think that calling her art maybe like um, makes it less personal for her. And so I say that as just like an idea that I'm playing with. Um, But I'm definitely interested in learning more about her because we know so much about him and his, his origin and stuff like that. Um, There's a lot of literature on that. And I'm sure that there's scholarship or something on, on Eurydice. Um, If not just reading a lot of retellings of the myth for like more detail, that's the best way I think to get a bigger picture uh, on the gifts or, um, details or qualities of a mythic figure. Just read that myth a million times from different sources and, and translators. Right. Um, but I do love what you're offering about them being like the ideal at that kind of early part of the story, um, and how we almost can't return to something that is that idyllic and that's that's depressing or harsh. But it doesn't mean that we don't reach another form of an ideal in the future with another person or another version of ourselves, you know, um, there it's are different the hard yeah. part
0: about going back. yeah, Cause I think yeah. it's this idea of, yeah, like trying to resurrect the past and like time keeps moving forward and the entryway into the ideal changes as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's notable too, that, you know, Orpheus is not like, you know, in another myth of dismemberment, um, The Egyptian god Osiris is dismembered, scattered. Isis puts him back together. They copulate and, you know, then, you know, his um, his shade goes down to the underworld. It's the same thing with Orpheus, although there's no sex. Um, He just has his soul go down into the depths of the underworld and he meets up with his beloved. So it's almost like the end of that experience of the body. Um, for him at that point point. Uh, and the souls then get to merge and mingle so yeah it's it, this is why I think this is why I wanted to offer this as a topic because it is so profoundly weird as a story and all of myths are odd and have these details that are like who came up with that and what social function did that have for the ancient psyche um, but Orpheus really offers us a lot of strange chambers too enter into and ask questions in so this is definitely one of them
0: I feel that um do you happen to know how Orpheus like then translates to the Orphic hymns
1: yeah so the story of Orpheus is just you know a myth that exists um in the ancient world but there is an Orphic religion uh, unto itself and so it was inspired by the Orpheus myth, um, but Orphism is its own religious tradition that um, the Orphic hymns are a part of. And so what's interesting about Orphism um, or the Orphic tradition is that unlike the Homeric tradition like of Homer um, where literature was kept in memory and recited, the Orphic religion was one of the first, if not the first moments in like Mediterranean religious history where the prayers were kept in a book and written down. And so that's another reason why he's like this interesting meeting place of the archaic and the classical um, or the un, you know, or it's like the the wild um, and the sort of uh, domesticated. Right, and so the Orphic hymns are these. I think there are eighty-seven of them, poets, uh, poets, uh, poems, prayers, hymns to various figures in myth. Um, right, and so Orphism has its own creation myth. It has its own sort of idea of what's important, and it believed in the ideas of um, reincarnation as well as original sin and suffering. So, there's even a little bit of like Orpheus and Christ overlap when we start looking at like the genealogies of, of all of these figures, they all sort of wind up coming from each other. Um So that's what I know. And yeah. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think for the Orphic hymns, um, those who know about like astrology magic are very familiar because they, they're a part of it, like invoking the, the hymns to particular deities that we're making an altar to. Um, and so yeah, it's kind of magical to see this, um, very like old mystery school religion, like have a kind of, um, revival and, in, in just like a total modern context across the internet and people getting into astrology and magic. Um, and that it really is, um, yeah, there's something, the ceremonial quality about like making a Venus altar and offering the hymn to Aphrodite, right? Like it, it is an experience. Um, it is something that is really felt. And I think that it's, um, you know, I didn't grow up with like religion or any kind of like religious conditioning. So it's not like a pain point or like it, I didn't have to unravel a lot there or anything like that. But I think that um, yeah, in that way, I can have a, a kind of light relationship with like religious practice. But I think it's interesting yeah, to tap into the Orphic hymns. It is an invitation to actually be kind of religious or kind of ceremonial however you want to put it but it's like there are these prayers to invoke these particular deities and that um, while it's something that is like classical or it's also something that people are very actively engaging in the astrology community.
1: It's so exciting and I love it so much and I think that again like Uh, you know, I was raised in a super religious context. And so when I learned about astrological magic, specifically the version of it, like you're talking about of building an altar and having a little, you know, like um, statue of the God and offering a prayer, I was like, oh, it's all the same. (laughs) You know, it was, it was kind of an easy holdover. And I say that, With full acknowledgement that not everybody is um, able to make that transition easily a lot of us have religious trauma and so that's just I want to be clear about you know my understanding of that because it is very tender for many of us Um, and I find that when I advise people on creating their own rituals sometimes there's a lot of apprehension around it because of what people have experienced previously but I think in the same way that Orpheus can like charm plants and animals and trees and rocks you know, there's an Orphic hymn for eighty-seven of the mythic figures. It's not just the gods, too. It's like there, you know, there's a hymn for um, for Hercules. There are hymns for um, the muses. There are so many different ways of getting into um, relationship with these different mythic figures that offer us different tools and different experiences. So, yeah, we, yeah, it's not. It's just like it, I love the the multiplicity that's that exists there.
0: Yeah, I think for, for anyone that's found their way, you know, into the Orphic hymns and has had some practice with them to then learn about Orpheus and that his song enchanted the whole world and had this kind of resurrection power, like that says a lot about what the Orphic hymns are as well. Um, And just kind of also about the, the meeting of prayer and intention with the voice.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah absolutely the voice and I'm thinking about like resonance, like I just had a little flash of like the lyre and the strings that vibrate and the voice and it makes the body vibrate too and we're reciting poetry or prayer or something like that or singing or just talking. Um, and I think that it is a really, there. It's a, there's an undeniable energy shift that happens when you read an Orphic hymn in front of a lit candle, Uh, when you're working with some kind of spirit it's absolutely fascinating and um, transformational I think so again nature is listening you know the energy is there so I think that's important to keep with us too.
0: Thank you so much for bringing your research to the podcast and also for um, inspiring me to start learning about the myth of Orpheus. Um, Do you have any Um, Any last thoughts you wanna share about this and um, how can people find you, connect with you, any offerings you'd like to tell us about?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody who has, um, yeah, listened through this conversation and thank you again, Sabrina, for the invitation. It's really special. Um, So, okay, one idea, um, like you mentioned before, using the asteroids as a little way of maybe revivifying our relationship to our charts. Um, I want everyone to know that there are asteroids for Orpheus, Eurydice, as well as Apollo and Dionysus, which maybe people know, but if not, um, Orpheus is asteroid number 3361, Eurydice is asteroid number 75, Apollo is asteroid number 1862, and Dionysus is number 3671, um. And I don't know why that felt like I was doing an infomercial with a phone number attached like to it. We can but... just like
0: dial the gods, like, <laughs> <laughs> this and like send a text.
1: Totally. <laughs> so text your gods and see where they sit in the chart. And it is a really <laughs> cool way of, of tuning in with where that experience of like the poet and his lover of loss of the Dionysian and the Apollonian, where does that sit in your chart? I think that would be my, my very simple, um, offering for the end of this um yeah so that's fun um you can find me on instagram my handle is eighth house astro and i'm most active there Uh, my website is just ChristinaFarella.com, and um i guess we you know i'll share that in the show notes or however sabrina links it but those are my two places to be um and I also have my own podcast. It's called Soar Mystica. And I have that. I uh, thank you. I'm so delighted. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm holding that with my friend, Mariana Lewis, who is a Jungian uh, influenced archetypal terrorist. And we talk about life's many symbols. So you can find me there, too.
0: Thank you so much, Christina.
1: Thanks, everyone.